real delight to be here, and I've got several thanks to, uh, to pass out. One, certainly to Peter Granger for giving me this opportunity. It's really terrific to have the opportunity to sit under his ministry week after week, and particularly after that marvelous sermon that you did this morning, Peter. Secondly, I'd like to thank the members of my fellowship group, uh, many who are seated around in the balcony. Uh, they've been praying for me for quite a while. They're uh, a great encouragement to me. Uh, I hope tonight that I can do better than I did last night at the fellowship group competition. Additionally, I want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ, whose table we will be celebrating uh, when, when we finish here. I have to thank my parents, uh, Barbara Critchlow, who is uh, going to be listening by tape delay. Uh, she sends the regards of the believers at Trinity Episcopal Church in Redlands, California. And my father, David, who died 18 months ago, uh, so he's listening live now. And he would want me to bring the greetings of the saints in Christ who've gone on ahead of us. I have to talk a, a little bit about how I came to Christ on this day. It was this day that I was struggling with exactly who is it that's in charge. Uh, so, let me go back a couple of years to the University of California. I was starting at uh, the University of California, Davis, and I was studying biology and chemistry and engineering, and I was very excited about the direction that my life was taking. But I found out that I really wasn't in charge, because in February of that year, I was called for national military service in the war in Vietnam. And I found out real quickly that I wasn't in charge. My father gave me some great counsel and said, why don't you turn this over to the Lord? And then at the same time, why don't you apply for one of the service academies so that you'll be better prepared when you go? Because he knew that I was 19, I was eligible, and I was going to serve. And so I did that. I turned it over to the Lord. It was 32 years ago today that I turned my life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I prayed a sinner's prayer. And Jesus took me from where I was in charge to where it was very clear that he was in charge. He took me from the University of California to the United States Military Academy at West Point. Now, West Point is not the relaxing garden spot that the University of California was. As a matter of fact, we had mathematics uh, six days a week starting at 7.45 for 90 minutes. But in addition to all the discipline that we were under at West Point, they also had a great Bible study program. That's where I got into the Bible in real time. I got real excited about the Word of God, what it was all about. What was the story of the Word of God? It was after four years there at West Point, I was commissioned and sent off to Berlin, Germany. But before I did that, I married my lovely wife, Melody. Uh, she is home in Maine right now with her ill father. I expect her to be back mid of May. Also, we had two lovely daughters along the way. A daughter, Melody, who I was privileged to marry to her childhood sweetheart, Joshua Grover, in July of last year. As a matter of fact... Uh, the groom's father, a pastor, 
and the bride's father, me, a pastor, we married our two children. Um, I said to Josh, do you take my daughter, Melody, to be your wife? And then Dave Grover said to Melody, do you take my son to be your husband? And then we said, and now we pronounce you. It was a great experience. Then also uh, we have a daughter, Grace, who is currently at the University of Maine, and she's coming to terms with who exactly is in charge in her life. Now I want to fast forward that quick testimony of, of how I came to be who I am, but I want to fast forward all the way to the 28th of February, 1991. From West Point, after that commission, I'd been a Christian for 19 years, and I found out that, that, in fact, he was going to take me to places where it was very clear that he was in charge of my life. Uh, the first picture that's coming up on the screen now is a picture of a Kiowa. This is an observation helicopter. I spent a lot of time with these in the Persian Gulf. As a matter of fact, this one's called a longbow. Uh, the next slide is of an Apache. This is a whole stream of Apaches getting ready to go into Iraq. And Blackhawks are already in the air. I spent a lot of hours flying around in the desert in a Blackhawk. Um, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. The next picture is a picture of infantrymen dismounted, and they're, um, they're going across the berm from uh, Saudi Arabia into Iraq and Kuwait. And the burning uh, thing in the background, that's an oil well that Saddam Hussein set on fire before he left Kuwait. And the last, charge, the last picture is of Bradley fighting vehicles. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time going up and down the sand with these things. Now, some people will automatically assume that I approve of all these things. But the point that I'm making is that Jesus Christ is in charge. I will never forget the time at the, on the fourth day of the Persian Gulf conflict, uh, the Republican guards that we were facing... Uh, my division was the leftmost division of ten French, British, and American divisions. And the Republican guards had been taking a horrible beating for four days. And I remember waking up at about two o'clock in the morning on the morning of the 28th, praying, that's enough, Lord. That's enough. It's just not fair to have them take any more beating." And I, I turned in my Bible, and I came to this wonderful passage that we're going to look at in just a minute, um, Zechariah. But it was in the, in the prayer that I found out, yes, in fact, Jesus Christ is in charge, even when we least expect it. Let's look at this, uh, this the return of the king prophecy. I'm looking at Zechariah. Uh, chapter 9 and verse 9. Zechariah 9 and verse 9. While you're turning there, I might just add that this was written about 520 years before Christ, and it's a coronation announcement. It's a call to rejoice. And it, uh, it's a wonderful, exalting Verse, so Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Now, in my prayer, I, I could obviously recognize your king comes to you. I knew who that was. That was Jesus Christ. But the original readers would not have known that. You see, the king had been exiled to Babylon 66 years before this was written. There was no king. They would have loved to have had their king back, but he'd gone into exile and then he died. So what is all this about shouting and, and Zion and Jerusalem celebrating about the king? Whoever this king was, he would be righteous. He would also have salvation. Now, it's a very interesting phrase here, having salvation. It's a passive term. It's not that Jesus Christ gives salvation. It's that Jesus Christ or the king, whoever it is, has been saved from something. And he owns salvation. He is righteous, and he owns salvation. So we, we know that. And then there's a third thing here about gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Donkeys are related to horses, but there's a very important difference. Donkeys are a beast of burden. Horses are for racing or for pulling chariots. Donkeys don't pull chariots. And so this king who comes, not only is he righteous and having salvation, but he's also humble, and he rides on a donkey. Now, I need to turn back to the passage that we read in Matthew 21. You may want to keep your finger in Zechariah because we're coming back. But Matthew 21, I want to make a couple of comments about uh, this wonderful offering that God does on Palm Sunday when he comes into the temple. In Matthew 21, they approach Jerusalem. Remember, this is the city of the great king. This is the city of David. David took the city from uh, the Jebusites. Uh, you can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 5. But as Jesus and his disciples approach Jerusalem, they come up over the Mount of Olives. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And then it, it quotes this prophecy that I just read. In verse 5, it says... I say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you. We just read that. That's a coronation comment. Gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And why a donkey? Donkeys stand for peace. And the people are doing this thing with the, uh, with the cloaks. So we've got, see, your king comes to you. We've got the donkey. And now we've got them spreading their cloaks. Well, what's the point of spreading the cloaks? Well, again, back in the Old Testament, if you choose to, you could turn to 2 Kings chapter 9, 13. But the long and short of the story is, when Jehu was, a, was crowned king, an Old Testament king, his men immediately stood up and threw their cloaks down on the ground. And Jehu stood on their cloaks. It was a sign not only to Jehu that he was the anointed king, but it was a sign that everyone who threw their cloak down said, I am in submission to you. So Jesus and his disciples coming down from the Mount of Olives, it would have been kind of like coming off of the esplanade on the castle down the serpentine path. Well, as they're coming down, they're spreading their cloaks on the donkey. It says here in verse um, that Jesus sat on them. He, he isn't sitting on the donkey and the colt. He's sitting on the cloaks that are on the donkey or the colt. And they're shouting out, Hosanna, 
Hosanna to the son of David. Now, the Hosanna comes from Psalm 118. This entire approach to Jerusalem is just overflowing with meaning. There are so many things that are going on in this one. And Hosanna is, is a translation of the word having salvation. Remember from, Jose, from Zechariah 9.9, we talked about how he has salvation. Well, the same word comes up here. It looks different in the English, but it's very similar in the original. Hosanna means uh, save us now. And the word Hosanna is simply a transliteration of that. So Hosanna to the son of David. Okay, so we've gotten this Jesus coming down, all of the implications of the cloak and the donkey and the king is coming and the Hosanna, and he comes down the hill. But I want to turn back to uh, my prayer in Zechariah. So if you would, please turn back to Zechariah 9, verse 10. This is the other half of my prayer when I was in that Black Hawk helicopter flying over the Iraqi desert, seeing what had been three divisions of the Iraqi Republican Guard. And I was praying on that time, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is Israel. It's just another term for Israel. And the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. That was the substance of my prayer right there. Okay, Lord, it's time to cut off the battle bow. It's time to stop the war horses. It's time to take away the chariots. The rest of that verse, he will proclaim peace to the nations. Now that's an interesting thought. Who can pro proclaim peace to the nation? The queen can't do it. The U.S. president can't do it. The prime ministers of Israel and Palestine can't do it. Only the king. Only the king who comes gentle riding on a donkey with cloaks spread, with palm branches, this wonderful triumphal entry. Only that king will be able to do it. And how far does his rule extend? Well, it says his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, the river that's spoken about here, this is the Euphrates River. I may have mentioned when I was flying in that Black Hawk, I wrote down, 7 March, 91, right here in my Bible. I'm looking at it. Black Hawk ride within 100 miles of the river. It was such a powerful moment in my life. It was the end of a, of a conflict. It was only four days, 100 hours, but thousands and thousands of soldiers died. It was a tragedy. And yet, I know exactly who's in charge. It's Jesus Christ. And I look forward to the time that he will fulfill the rest of this passage. Now, let's see what Jesus does in Matthew. Turn back there to Matthew 21, the same section that we were looking at. And I'm now in Matthew 21, starting at verse 12. We have this gentle, humble, righteous king having salvation who comes to the temple. 
This is God presenting himself again. When Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, he used the spot that David had picked out. They built the temple. Solomon prayed that God would always favor Jerusalem, and specifically this temple area. And so, here's Jesus coming to the temple area, the place where God promised his name and his, his heart and his eyes would always be there. Can you imagine the, the Jesus knowing this is the place where the great sacrifices have been held? This is the place where they've been waiting for the king to come for so long. And now, up to the temple comes the great king, God himself. And what does he find? There's a marketplace going on. So, the God in the flesh drove out all that were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And then he quotes this scripture, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. God in the flesh. Now verse 14 picks up this comment about the blind and the lame. Now this is interesting. Why the blind and the lame in a passage about the king coming to Jerusalem? If you were to turn back to 2 Samuel 5, you would note that when David took the temple when he took the high place from the Jebusites, the Jebusites taunted him and said, even the blind and the lame can keep you out. And David said, uh, whoever would attack Jerusalem would have to use the, uh, the water shaft to take the blind and lame, who are the enemies of my soul. And the passage goes on to say that the blind and the lame were never again allowed into the palace so here come the blind and the lame, and Jesus reverses this oracle. Jesus welcomes the blind and the lame. Jesus, the son of David, welcomes and heals the blind and the lame. After the dialogue with the Pharisees, after the healing, after the driving out of the, uh, the money changers, he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. This is a, another poignant moment. God has presented himself in the temple. He has been rejected, and so he departs. This reminds me of a, of a wonderful passage in Ezekiel, where even though the shouting of the Hosannas and the Son of David and all of that, Jesus is about to enact a visual sermon, just like riding the donkey into Jerusalem was a visual sermon. He enacts this, this sermon from Ezekiel. Um, if you'd like to turn to that. I'm looking at Ezekiel 11. Now, all of Ezekiel 8 to 12, 8 to 11 is a, is a marvelous interchange about the glory of God in the temple. It's after the departure of the king. It's after all of the, uh, the Babylonians have, have taken the, 
the people away. And Ezekiel 11:23, the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. That was the Mount of Olives. Jesus presented himself as the king, the great king who had been expected, the great king who had been prophesied, the great king who had been uh, foretold from ages past. He rides the donkey. He does everything that's expected. He fulfills all of the scriptures. And yet he, has to, he is rejected and he goes out and spends the night at the Mount of Olives. But what about my prayer? What about my prayer in Zechariah 9.10? I'll never forget it. I don't think God will. When will he cut off the chariots? And what about the war horses? And what about the battle bow? I have to be content knowing that he is exactly the person that's in charge. He's been so faithful through 32 years of my life. I know he will be faithful in the next however many years he lends me on this earth. I would encourage you to put your trust in the Lord if you haven't already done that. If you have, then you can rejoice with me that it was 32 years ago today that the angels danced over another sinner who came home. And he will surely... Cut off the battle bow. He'll surely destroy the chariot. It's not long for the war horse. But our king, Jesus Christ, is coming again. And the next time Jesus comes, he's coming on a white horse. Won't be a donkey the next time. He won't be coming in peace next time. He's coming to deal with all of the those who have rejected him. And the question we have to ask ourselves, will we be ready? We're going to sing hymn number 424. The words will be on the screen.